The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management, or other hosts or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented by KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Greetings, listeners in listener land. This is Arnold Stricker of Intune. We're glad that you joined us today. We have a very special guest in studio to talk to about a topic that everybody needs to get in touch with, or I should say get in tune with. Because if you're not in tune with this particular topic, you are out of tune. You are not resonating. You're dissonant. All those musical analogies from my musical background. But in studio, we have Shelley Touchluck. Shelley, welcome to Intune today. Thank you for having me. Shelley uh, has a bachelor's in psychology from UCLA, a master's in counseling psychology from Loyola Marymount University, and a PhD in depth psychology at Pacifica Graduate Institute. She's taught elementary and middle school in Inglewood, California. She's trained teachers in a variety of topics. She's a professor in the education department at Mount St. Mary's University in LA, the author of Witnessing Whiteness, The Need to Talk About Race and How to Do It, and also the most recent book, Living in the Tension, The Quest for a Spiritualized Racial Justice. Shelley, tell us, first of all, uh, this particular topic. It's going to make some people uncomfortable, won't it? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> over over your the course of your experience, you've probably seen some people, uh, including yourself, matter of fact, historically, uh, kind of wonder what in the world's going on. Uh, what, what's, what's your story as it relates to how you got to do this and what you're doing today? Well, I definitely had no idea this was even a subject to be talked about before I started teaching elementary school in Inglewood. And that is a district that is and was serving largely and almost probably 99% um, African-American and Latinx community members. And I walked in there as a white woman thinking that I was just doing a you know, a, a great job just trying to bring my skills and my care and my investment um, to them. And it was the parents and teachers and other staff at that location that slowly but surely started telling me, hey, Shelly, you know what, we actually like you and everything. And there's a lot that you're missing. You actually don't know what's going on around you. And I at first, didn't really know how to take that, but thankfully there were people who were willing to continue to offer me guidance, and and some people in particular that I became very close with who we struggled together. And talk about discomfort, I really fought back in some ways because I did not understand what was being told to me. It took me a long time to get with this conversation, so to speak. And to be perfectly honest, it took me so long and was so difficult, and I didn't have other people to talk to who understood my experience and what I was trying to work through, that that's actually why in the end of it all, I ended up writing this book because I didn't want it to, number one, be as painful as it was for me, for others. And I didn't want it to take as long either. So if I had gone through it and other people by that time around me had gone through it, why not reach back and help other people get to a better place more quickly? So what we're, what you're talking about is is seeing things through the perspective of many times how black people have lived in a white world, Correct. That was definitely part of it, was opening up my vantage point to understand that my view of the world was not the only one. That's absolutely part of it. But another part was recognizing not just how I was missing what other people were experiencing, but that I actually was 
interpreting my own experience of the world in a way that was very limited. Well, talk about that a little bit. What what opened that up? What was like the 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 Pandora's box where the lid came off that you're like, holy smokes, I never knew anything about this stuff. It wasn't one moment, and I think that's that's really key. It wasn't one moment. It wasn't one book. It was a constant constant barrage of a variety of moments where I would say, well, this is how I see the world. And then somebody would say, yeah, but what about? And then I would push back and they'd say, yeah, but what about? And I'd push back. And at the end of it all, I'd I'd realize, okay, there's actually something here I don't understand. So I know that's not a particular example because I can't think of only one. There were just so many. Because I know in your in your book, in you have a chapter here called Uncovering a Hidden History, and I found this particular chapter, as we discussed previously, very, very uh, informative and enlightening because you, you trace back kind of the invention of whiteness, and people will, will go, well, what, what does that mean? And why don't you give a def- definition for, for listeners so that they understand exactly what we're talking about? No, thank you for that question, because that's really important. And and. So this piece of research that I started doing was after all of the various years of me trying to just even explore myself and my attitudes and my interpretations of the world. But once I got to the point of saying, okay, how do I help you know, other people look at this better? I was looking at, so how did we come to this place of having a race called white in the first place? Where did that even come from? And so I want to make this distinction that whiteness is not the same thing as white people. And I I do think a lot of people out there conflate the two things because I, as a white person, have a choice in how I relate to what it means to be white. I have a choice uh, how I relate to the systems that have been created that have historically advantaged white people. And so whiteness, for me, has been this entire system of advantages that essentially privileged people who were going to be determined to be white, to be able to be citizens, to be the people who were going to be the owners, the people who were going to be the voters, the people who could be the witnesses at trials. There's all of these ways that white people were able to be in charge of their own lives and the earlier parts of our history. Um, And that sort of historical creation of a structure has not been fully deconstructed. Yeah, you you go back all the way back to the late 1600s and the 1700s on how assemblies, general assemblies, would put forth laws or statutes or codes to give privileges to a certain group of people and not to other groups of people. And that's one of the things that I learned that was astounding to me. Now, keep in mind, I am not a historian. There are people like Jacqueline Badalora who've done really in-depth work in this topic. Um, but before her book was available, I was trying to figure this out for myself and um, finding the resources that were available at the time and really stunned to realize that um, prior to the 1700s, there wasn't really an articulation of white people in any of our laws or policies or texts. They, the distinctions at the time were Christian versus heathen. Those were some of the, the that was a language that we, was used at the time. And so what you see is as 
the sort of structures and the powers that be started creating actual white skin privilege laws, that's when you start to see people identifying as white over about the next 100, 150 years until it actually became an identity. Now, I know you talked, you're not a historian, and that that's, that's cool. Do you perceive, though, that some of that that took place at the end of the 1600s and 1700s was due to the fact that now we do have, there is a slave trade going on, now there is like a new world, quote unquote, established versus before that, maybe, you know, Europeans kind of stayed where they were, Africans stayed where they were, Asians stayed where they were, and they never really mixed or met. Just kind of supposing or what your thoughts are on that. My thoughts from what I have read indicate that it's it's not quite as large as that as much as here on this continent um, where we had brought people in, right, without their consent um, to live. A and by the way, we had indentured servants living next to enslaved people, but the enslavement laws shifted over time. And so imagine that the people who were in charge were not that numerous, actually. And indentured servants were not necessarily treated terribly well, although they were treated better than those of African descent. And this was really about social control. This was really about what do we do when a population starts getting together and demonstrating that they're willing to work together. Or getting educated or <laughs> We had laws against that. Right, <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, I was also intrigued in this particular chapter when you started talking about the legal disconnect for uh, black citizens and really just citizenship in general, but, but how the legal system was manipulated or leveraged uh, against, against them. And the part that really grabbed me was that it didn't even seem as much about a conscious conspiracy as much as the regular use of white supremacy to continue to maintain the levels of control that that currently existed. So what ended up getting set up, not by design, but just, you know, by the way it worked out, there were multiple Supreme Court decisions, for example, that ended up utilizing a different logic, a different rationale, depending on who is in front of them. And what it helps explain is why understanding what it means to be a racial category is so confusing, because it's completely derived from white supremacist thinking. And there isn't really a solid logic to it, because it's not a real thing. Race is not a real thing. It's but it's been used as part of a manipulation to maintain control for so long, or at least it certainly had that it that what ended up coming through in some of the legal decisions were, well, this is common knowledge. Well, you know, how common to is whom? that? Right, exactly. One of the things that I, I learned in, in reading, and folks, it's always good to read because you you do learn things. I don't think anybody knows it all. If you do, then don't admit that. Uh, but when, when we're talking about the citizenship, and I never knew that you really had to be a citizen prior to, what is it, 1965, 1965 you had to be really technically white. I was like, what? Yeah, which puts a little bit of a different spin on it when we have a current admission that's going to go back to the 1924 immigration laws, which essentially put that into place, that to become a nationalized citizen, you needed to be white. 
yeah, yeah. naturalized. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. and I remember reading a little bit about how Irish were viewed, and they weren't quite viewed as being quote unquote white, but they weren't really viewed as you know, and and how they kind of eased to the side of being white, and how other uh, there was distinctions made with some um, Asian Americans who were trying to say that they were white because maybe they were. Uh, there had been an intermarriage at some point or other other ethnic groups that were trying to move to the white side so they could gain uh, citizenship status. So there are a couple of things. Um, one of them is that the idea of who counts as white, who gets to be part of the group, has evolved over time. There has never been an absolutely definitive determination on that. And so every couple of decades or so, different groups evolve into it. Um, I believe it tends to match fairly well with groups that end up being economically viable and and doing well. Um, And so, yes, there are definitely cases where groups, though, in a slightly in a different way, have sought to align themselves with being white for the sake of getting the benefits of what whiteness has provided. Sure. This is Arnold Stricker of Intune. You're listening to KWRH 92.9 FM. We've been talking to Shelley Touchluck. And Shelley, so were some of these things that you talked about in the historical aspect, the hidden history, were those some of the things that your colleagues talked to you about when you were teaching in Englewood? And were those the things that prompted some inter- introspection and some further study and research on your own, which kind of led you forward? Actually, not at all. Really? (laughs) No, the historical piece never came up at all during those early years. The stuff that I was really prompted to reflect on myself about were very day-to-day, real live, what's going on with you and the kids. What are the interpretations you are making of the children's behavior? What's the interpretations you're making of the parents? And how is that actually infused with a, a prism of racism that you're not even aware of. What are some of those so, so, so our listeners can understand exactly what you're talking about? Yeah, there. so for example, um, I walk in there as a probably, I want to say I was a 26-year-old master's degree holding white middle-class woman, um, completely astounded that the parents aren't coming to the teacher-parent conferences and judging them because uh, uh, they're not showing up. Um, And what I was helped to understand is that I might have something to do with why they weren't showing up, whether it was the structuring of the limited notice that they received, whether it was the strictness of the timing I expected them to come when they might be holding two or three jobs, whether it was the fact that even though this was a school that served mostly black and brown students, that they had had probably predominantly white teachers that may or may not have treated them terribly well. And so this is, and that's just within the scope of their children's lives, much less the fact that many of these folks were people who had um, interacted with uh, systemically authoritative figures that looked like me that also may not have treated them very well. So the level of trust was not high. And I thought I had nothing to do with that. But the fact is, I represented something that very much had a lot to do with that. And it behooved me to get off of my high horse, so to speak, and start to figure out what is the way that this community needed me to relate to them and to reach out to not only ever overcome what I represented, but also to understand what community norms were that was going to 
make it a more inviting experience for the parents to come in. So what were some suggestions that your colleagues who had kind of been in the trenches and knew the community, what were some of their suggestions Number one, make a relationship with the family that wasn't just about telling tales about their kids that were negative. Number two is get out and don't be afraid of going to their homes. And, you know, number three, be flexible to make sure that I could communicate in the way that best suited them and not exactly on the time frame that suited me. I always thought home visits uh, for teachers to parents of their students were good things. I know sometimes there's, there's pushback because you know, well, maybe you're going into an area that's a little dicey, or maybe you need to go in pairs, uh, maybe with the principal, uh, or maybe with another teacher, so that there's a little safety in numbers. But I always thought that those were very good times to establish rapport and relationship with, with families. And, you know, if you were willing to make that effort, that parents were willing to uh, give you a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt. The home visits made all the difference in the world. And um, I had those conversations about safety. I had those fears coming from, uh, I was a suburban kid working in an urban environment, and I had been told that that was a dangerous thing to do. Um, I think the going in pairs was definitely a a viable alternative. And I had a really revealing conversation with um, my other, at the time, fifth grade um, co-teacher, not at the same you know, the same grade level, not in the same room. And he was a black man who said, look, it is safer for you to go out than it is for me. You are not going to be mistaken for a local drug Mm. dealer. Mm. You are not going to be mistaken for, you know, somebody from a gang. You're not going, whatever color you wear, you're going to be okay. And people do not want to bring the heat down on them by injuring the white woman in the neighborhood. So you're going to be seen as either a social worker or a teacher or some other service person, whether or not you're going to be well-received is a different story, but you're not in nearly as much danger as you think. So this, all this kind of has is boiling up within you. I use the word boiling up. Maybe it's just kind of a slow simmer and it's opening your eyes, opening your ears, uh, your thought process to seeing things that are going on around you or that have gone on around you and that may go on around you. And is that an impetus for the book? It was an impetus for me. This is an interesting part of it. It was an impetus for me. At the time, I was going to be exiting education. So I left my elementary school position. I was going off to do my doctorate work. And the most essential people in my life were some mentors, some men of color who were doing a violence intervention program at that elementary school. And Therefore, I was hooked into a lot of the youth mentorship work that nonprofits that was occurring in Los Angeles. And because of that, I had a very particular investment in wanting to make sure that kids were given opportunity, right, whether it was in school or out of school. And so I went off to this doctoral program thinking that what I wanted to do was, you know, create mentorship programs to help bring funding in to help support students who had disadvantages. And what happened as I continued to try and move toward that goal is what I discovered was this whiteness thing might get in the way. And it was a barrier between white people understanding not just the nature of how kids of color are often looked at unfavorably um, without, you know, a good reason, in my opinion, but also where it came a pity party or where it had just a lot of um, 
a lot of negative uh, sort of orientation around it that I just didn't think was going to be helpful. So I thought I better work on this whiteness thing. And not only should I, do I not do I not do I need to work on it um, to be better supporting kids, but I need to understand it for myself. And that turned into I need to understand what my role and responsibility is as a white person who's starting to see this stuff because I didn't have a large community of white people around me who were having this conversation. When I was looking at other books, I didn't see a whole lot that was helping me see models of what it can look like to um, be a responsive and responsible person who is is trying to get this stuff, but isn't perfect. And that's really where the book sort of came from. This idea of witnessing whiteness was, I don't want to be the kind of person who's just a bystander to all of this. But at the time, the language that was coming out in a book that changed my life was called Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria mm -hmm. by Beverly Daniel Tatum. Mm -hmm. That book was so instrumental to me. I read all of her work, and she was making this really strong statement about – and she was teaching white university students at the time. And she kind of did this thing where she said, okay, there's pretty much three models of how to be white in the world. And like, you can either be a racist, raise your hand if you know what that looks like. Yep. Okay. We might all have a different imagination, but we know what that is. And she said, okay, what about the guilty liberal? Okay. Well, you know, again, we might have different imaginations, but we know what that is. She said, okay, what about being totally unconscious, clueless? Yeah. Okay. We get that. Like, raise your hand if you want to be any of those three things. Like silence. I mean, who wants to be any of those three things? Those aren't attractive. And what she said was, you know, for white people who have been raised in a culture that has been predominantly telling us as white people that we're supposed to be colorblind, that we're individuals, and that actually the way to get beyond the race issue is to just get over it and not talk about it, and that is the cultural messaging received, then what's the pull in to actually deal with this stuff? And she said, well, there is this other model, and it's called the ally. Well, so I went around and I asked all the, pe the white people I knew, do you know what this thing called a white ally is? No, nobody knew anything about it. So I didn't have anybody to have this conversation about what does it mean to be a white ally? How do we do this? But I went to some folks of color. At, at the time, I was doing some volunteer work. We were meeting in Watts at this Community Self-Determination Institute. And I asked this one particular woman, I said, so hey, what does it mean to be a white ally? She said, oh, it's an anti-racist activist. Well, that freaked me out because that was <laughs> number one. I, I mean, at least I got a sense of what that was going to be. And that was going to be really hard. And so since I didn't necessarily see, I was not political at the time. So long story short, I figured I needed some kind of bridge, some kind of identity process so we could figure out who are we and how is it that we can do a better job as we get closer to that ideal, which is this ally now. I think we're using the word accomplice ideal. So witnessing whiteness is being able to notice and name, understand ourselves so that we can understand how to position ourselves to be in solidarity partnership with people of color as we all collectively move toward a more just future. Now, you're going to be giving a keynote address uh, at Webster University. Uh, and when is that again? That is tomorrow morning, I believe, at 9.15 Okay, and that's part of a uh, program that's been going on at Webster University. And we'll get into that a little bit more after our break. But uh, some things... Uh, you know, I, w I want folks to think about is maybe they, uh, you have in, in your book, I thought was, v was very interesting, you know, the right-handed, left-handed people, and you were late to class one time, and you only, you kind of snuck in, you sat in a left-handed chair, and if you've ever done that, folks, it's very uncomfortable. 
it's not like it's set up for you. And the world is really set up for right-handers. Uh, if you're a left-hander, I apologize out there, you know, uh, unless, uh, you know, sometimes there's there's some lefty kind of stuff going on out there. The other thing I remember from, from my training was uh, Jane Elliott's study, The Blue and Brown Eyes, and how it, it can be so fast to, for people to uh, have, have prejudices and, and to have stereotypes about individuals because of how they look or how they don't look or because of the color of their eyes or they're right-handed or left-handed. And we'll get into a little bit more about that after uh, our break, too. So we've been talking to Shelley Touchluck. She's going to be giving a keynote address tomorrow at Webster University. And you've been listening to Arnold Stricker of In Tune, KWRH 92.9 FM. We're going to come back, talk more about what her keynote's going to be about, and talk a little bit also about uh, some of her current research, some of the things she's focusing on now, and maybe uh, I'll surprise her with a couple other things. And she's, she's like, what? What are you going to do now? But we'll be back uh, after our bottom of the hour here. Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. You're listening to KWRH 92.9 FM. We have Shelley Touchluck with us today, and she's been talking to us about her background. She's going to be speaking at Webster University, and that is part of a large uh, annual diversity and inclusion conference, which is held from February 24th to the 27th. She's going to be giving the keynote and is going to be presenting on some topics, and she's going to be filling us in a little bit on that. But we kind of left off talking about left-handed, right-handed, brown-eyed, blue-eyed. How, how are, you know, obviously white and black, but people seem to find ways to discriminate, to have prejudice against a variety of differences that people have. What are your, what are your thoughts more on that? I mean, I, I, I don't know exactly where that comes from for us, but it certainly is something that, you know, I have grappled with in the sense that anything that is unfamiliar somehow seems wrong. So when you were naming about the left-handed, right-handed desks, which I didn't even know was a thing until I was sitting in one in college, I had a similar experience having substituted in a kindergarten classroom and then tried to use a couple of pair of scissors. I'm like, oh, these are broken. These don't work. Right. These are wrong. <laughs> I had no idea that there were left-handed scissors. Right. Like a right-handed person who never comes in contact with that does not even know it exists. And so the first experience of it is it's wrong, it's bad, these are broken, toss it out. And so while that's a very simple experience, I, or example, I think we could track that out and imagine all sorts of different experiences where everything in our life's um, teachings has been, this is the a way that it's supposed to be. And then when you find out that other people are doing something totally different or have a very different view of what you're doing, it's very discombobulating <laughs> and it seems wrong. And so to be able to develop an attitude that is take a step back, take a breath, maybe listen, maybe allow all of these things that feel so radical to kind of you know, wait, like wash over you while you try to figure out, hey, where is there something, a kernel in this I can understand that opens a window to a totally different way of being in the world that I have found extremely um, enlivening. Um, but I get that it can be very scary for people. What, what, what scares them? Well, I can just say what scared me. Okay. 
I what's, mean, what scared you? What scared me was that if I took one step in, then it was like the foundation of my world was going to crumble. And that's really what was happening for me at the time. And this is my very personal story, is that I was getting challenged on issues of race at the same time as I was getting challenged on issues of class. And I was also going through something of a spiritual quest quest mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. And so the people I was interacting with had different opinions on all three. And so everything that I rested my, this is how the world works, was coming under into question. And if you take one of those blocks out, you may be fine, but you start taking two, three, four, five, six of them out, suddenly you're wondering, how do I step? How do I stand? What is my foundation? And if this one's wrong, and that one's wrong, or at least it's far more complex than I thought, then what does it mean for the rest of them? And then what does that mean for the people who taught me all this stuff? Does that mean they were wrong too? Does that mean that they, I mean, was this a betrayal? Was this intentional? Were they lying to me? Or were they, you know, out of their best intention? And if all of them were operating out of their best intention, then somebody taught them that way too. And what does that mean for our larger society? So you can see how this can snowball. Right. And that really was my experience was recognizing this absolute snowball effect. And I think for a lot of people... Whether or not they see the entire snowball, there's something that recognizes this doesn't feel right. And that, that right doesn't mean it's wrong, but it just means it's not normal for them. And, and you, you talked, I, I know, when we were on break one time about people who are bystanders, who, and you correct me if I'm wrong, who basically have no clue, and then people who are bystanders who have knowledge, and then there's people who intervene. And... You know, you could say the foundational people, you know, maybe my parents or my grandparents, they just didn't know. And maybe another group knew but didn't do anything. And then you come to yourself where, okay, I know this stuff. What am I going to do? I I can choose. I can't be the person who doesn't know because I do know. So now I have to either do something and deal with it or I just have to ignore it and be a bystander and watch things happen. Are those kind of the categories or groups that you would kind of classify those as? I feel like I walk in, I would just mush all those buckets of people together and say that we can be all of that in the exact same time. Okay. Right. So there are things that I am more aware of now that I've been I've been working at for the last 10, 15 years. And I'm going to speak about those things. And I'm going to speak about them in a way that is effective because I've learned the skills and I have the background knowledge and that I'm really proud of. But there are also a whole bunch of topics and areas where I still might be looking at like a deer in the headlights because I I haven't investigated that one enough. And so for all of us, there are moments where we become knowledgeable and we can take action effectively. There are other times where we start to get it, we might be able to see it, and our action is maybe well-intentioned and still has errors involved. And then there are some where we're just kind of shaking our head, not knowing what's going on. And for all three of those moments, which all of us can inhabit you know, any given day, for me, what's been most important is the cultivating and the accessing of communities that can help me sort through it, that can help me take my next steps. Without having a community, and this is what I will be talking about tomorrow a bit, without having a community of people who started to congregate around these issues, where we can come together on a monthly basis and say, hey, what did you experience? What did you see? What did you learn? And how do we help support each other to become more capable of noticing, naming, and being active about it, I mean, that's really what's given a lot of meaning. 
supporting, in, in my words now, a little deprogramming because we are kind of programmed a certain way based upon how we were raised, the neighborhoods we live in, where we went to school, all of the things that have impacted us. And right or wrong, they are what they are. And if they're not, if you, if you get new information, I understand that and I agree with that. You do need a support system because otherwise you may be floundering there a little bit. So, so talk more about your keynote tomorrow, which is uh, part of the uh, Webster University Fifth um, Annual Diversity and Inclusion Conference. What what kind of let's let's tantalize some people who may not have um, uh, signed up yet? Because folks, I think if you haven't signed up, you may be standing outside in the hallway, or maybe you have to have your coat on to listen. So t- tell us a little bit, Shelley, about what you're going to be talking about. Well, I do think they'll have another room for people to go to. <laughs> I don't think you're going to have to bring your umbrellas, but um, um, I don't know about being tantalizing, but I, I, I am planning to talk about sort of what have been my big, some of the biggest lessons it, that I've learned over the last probably 10 plus years after having written the book. I, I do know that this is the place in the country that has had the most people who have read this book. And it's because of the YWCA program, Witnessing Whiteness, where many, many people have, have actually read this book. But that book was actually written quite some time ago, and I'm aware of that. I still think the themes are quite relevant. We haven't really changed that much, even though the dynamics around us have shifted markedly. Um, but some of the major lessons, and I'm just, I'm going to offer four big ones. I'll give you a preview of one. Okay. So in terms of the conversation around accountability, that is a big word. And especially for people who decide, okay, I know stuff. I know there's problems going on. I am a well-intentioned person who wants to be part of, say, racial justice efforts, and I'm a white person. So I want to be accountable. I want to be accountable for how I act in the world. Well, the racial justice language around accountability, it's ebbed, it's flowed, it's evolved, and it's complicated. And on any given day, there are different aspects where being accountable might look one way to one person, it might look a different way to another. So there's a lot to navigate is my point. And so I'll be sharing some stories about how I came to understand this and have done work within my own community um, around the pros and the cons of different approaches. And what's going to come up in each of the lessons is the framing around how a both and attitude, both and thinking can really open up possibilities for how to walk through these tensions in a way that doesn't necessarily resolve everything, but it, at least it can give us a ground to stand on that helps us move forward. Right, now speak more about the both and as opposed to the either or, because I know you talk about that a little bit in the book, but I want you to expand on that so people really understand what that what that means. Yeah, so at least the way I was raised and most people I know, um, our culture tends toward a, an attitude of either or, and we find all sorts of polarity, polarities based on this. And uh, the idea of having both and thinking is uh, the core belief that two seemingly oppositional things can both be true at the exact same time. So what does that mean? What does that mean when two things that seem like they're in contradiction are actually both true? And so for me, holding that as an inner truth opens up some possibilities. Number one, when I'm in conversation with somebody and I'm being checked or challenged on something, 
there's still maybe something accurate in either what I've said or what I've done. There may be something really good about it. That doesn't mean that this other person doesn't have something equally important and true also to say. So number one, that opens me up. I've also found that an extremely strategy when engaging in conversations about race with other people so that pretty much when most people that I talk to, regardless of where they're coming from, I can find something in their experience or something in their conversation that I can validate, that I can say yes, I can say yes to this part of something. And then I can add something else to try to complicate it a bit. So it's both an inner orientation as well as a conversational strategy. I, I really respect that you investigate things and you've used that word several times because a lot of I, this broad brush statement here when people look at issues like this they will use sor sources from social media or the internet and granted some of those things may have some research-based or origin to them but for the most part they may just be editorial or opinions and the, the fact that you have investigated some things, you've laid some of those things up against your own experiences, you've talked to other people, had a support network, and have really relied upon, hey, where am I in this process, or what am I missing here? I, I think that that's that speaks well, because I, I'm contrasting that with this, is that many times our initial thoughts or things that contribute to our bias or our prejudice or our stereotypes or those things that we hold against other people are based upon things that we get from the media and headlines or pictures from the media or those kinds of things. And those headlines may not even be related to the story. How the story's written may not even be really, it's, it's written with a bias uh, rather than just here's the information. And so I, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to communicate is the fact that you've gone through these things to think about them and to investigate them rather than, oh, here's, here is, and some folks out there, you need to hear this, is here's the latest, some people will think, well, this is the latest thing that's snowballing, so I'll get on board with that. Or there's another thing over here that I'll get on board with. This is something that you have lived, and it's been resonating with you for many, many years. Yeah, and I would say that this particular keynote is is a product of 10 years of trying to really sort through what have been the ongoing points of challenge or conflict that I have not only personally experienced, but I have seen play out um, within groups of people who really want to make things better mm -hmm. and still struggle. Mm -hmm. And so this isn't about saying here's the right way, but saying here are the complexities and here's where I've landed on this and here's a way that the both and can help us find a way through to hopefully encourage more people to jump on board to the direction, the quote unquote, we are headed. And by we, what I mean is anybody who actually wants us to retain, augment, or even create, if you don't think we have one, a vibrant multiracial democratic society mm -hmm. that is equitable. Mm -hmm. This is Arnold Stricker of Intune. You're listening to KWRH 92.9 FM. Shelley, talk to us about the uh, your last book here, and that is Living in the Tension, The Quest for a Spiritualized Racial Justice. Overview of the book, what, what generally is that about? 
So the book itself is about a number of themes that I experienced that were, I think, and still are um, creating distance between activist communities and more spiritually oriented people or communities. I would also say that it could be read not as a group as opposed to group, but also internal and within. So I'll give an example. Um, one of the themes has to do with whether or not progress forward is about attending to our individual um, enhancement, our individual growth, right? So the consciousness raising, consciousness building, I am the change I seek to be in the world. I see that a lot on the email threads, you know, mm -hmm. I am the change I want to be in the world. Okay, that's beautiful. Um, but that individual focus is one thing. What about the more public, political, active, let's all get together and we actually need to make the policies change, right? So how do those things both support each other, but how is it also that they end up being antagonistic toward each other when a group says that their way is the only way or the right way or and or can't see the value in the other side? So if so, the way the book is structured is it lays out, here's what happens if we're only on one side versus only on the other side, here's the challenges that show up, and here are then the benefits of what if we get it together and actually pull in the, the benefits of both sides. So really is the both and versus mm -hmm. the either or. You're really yeah, the kind entire of, book is a both and book, yeah. Yeah, both and, okay, yeah. all right, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. So you also have a curriculum that you have uh, uh, mentioned that you wrote for the y YWCA, and you also are involved with uh, the Aware LA, the Alliance of White Anti-Racist Everywhere in Los Angeles, and you also have a four-day summer institute entitled Unmasking Whiteness. What What's the response from people who are involved with, obviously you, you mentioned that the Midwest here in this particular area has really uh, used the book a lot, may, maybe based upon the curriculum. What's the Aware LA and the Unmasking Whiteness? What is the uh, response to all of those? When people know about it, it's pretty favorable. Um, I think the key here is that all of the curriculum that is book-oriented or um, organizationally derived is free. It's available. This isn't a moneymaker. This is about getting as many people on board, invested in racial justice, and capable of enacting themselves in a better way as possible. So... Um, the response to witnessing whiteness has mostly been that even for people who already quote unquote think they got it, there's a deepening because that curriculum came out of an experience that I had and other people had in a different group where just guiding questions was too actually open. It didn't take us into the deeper reflection place we needed. So this curriculum was generated, reviewed by others, revised and all of that, and then put out as a way to help groups of people find a really deep experience. And it's really only supposed to be a start. So if you go through a Witnessing Whiteness program, that's just the beginning of a journey. And so for me, the Living in the Tension, which also has a curriculum, a little bit more of a pick your own adventure because it's mm -hmm. got mm -hmm. like five different themes, okay. um, types of activities. So 
for people who go that route with living in the tension and looking at that curriculum, it's also on the website. It's also free. It's also downloadable. And that one, um, I mean, I learned a lot more, right? Um, I think that's either next level or really good for people who have a more spiritual orientation. Um, but it's really heading in that same direction. Admittedly, although both of them were reviewed by a multiracial audience so that the most of it can be utilized in a multiracial setting, the fact of the matter is that mostly it's white people who are most served by it. And that's, you know, that's because that's my focus is getting more white people invested. Aware is a is not my product, but it is a community of people in Los Angeles. It's all volunteer. It's 16 years strong. And um, we are a group of people who are trying to, you know, build that network and community locally, but also make sure that people have access to our resources. So if they want to replicate something like it in their own home communities, we have mentoring opportunities. We get on the phone with people. We can help talk you through. I've had a number of people who make that phone call or email, send an email, and we'll get on the phone and, and we'll talk it through enough that they, they'll decide to start with witnessing whiteness in order to get a, a shared vocabulary, a shared understanding in kind of a deep way. And once they've done that, then they move forward to a more aware style, which requires a little bit more uh, experience with okay. the topics. You know, I, I was thinking about, um, and I lost my question, Mark. I was... <laughs> I, I was listening, I got involved with in what else Shelley was talking about. I was like, okay, I, okay, here we go. Here we go. You mentioned a lot of this is for white individuals. How does the black community feel about what's going on and about some of the things that you've been doing? Well, number one, there is not one single black community. Right. So that's the first thing, okay. right? So, I mean, that's the crux of this both and is that people of color feel all sorts of different ways about it. Okay. Um, we, we the, the folks who founded AWARE and who have continued to give it life, are in multiracial relationships, both organizationally as well as individually. And so there are people of color who have been advocating and um, supporting our work from the absolute get-go. Um, there are people of color in my life who are only friends with me because of this work that I do. Okay. And there are people of color who, um, I would say a lot of whom, who are not either in L.A. and look at more broadly the idea of white people doing work with white people and are deeply skeptical. And I understand why. Right. I mean, if you haven't had an experience, a, a localized experience of white people doing a good job with this, you have every right to wonder whether it's actually going to come out in a good way <laughs> so i agree with that i agree yeah. with that so we've got just a few minutes left what are some closing thoughts that you would like to leave with our listeners uh related to the things you've learned uh where you're going what are some matter of fact we didn't hit on what are some of your current and, and future research but what would you like them to remember and to focus on i think for me the most important message is always that there is actually a community of white people out there who are doing really solid work. 
and are building national networks of people who are imperfectly striving. Sure, we are making mistakes and maybe for every two steps forward, we might find ourselves having one step back, but there is an authentically joyful, liberation-oriented, loving community that can be found and keep searching for it because regardless of where you are on the journey, you might just be having a first initial, huh, maybe there's something to be looking into here. Or you might be someone who's been a 20-year deep activist who got depressed and removed over time. Regardless of where you are on the journey, I think there's something really wonderful happening right now, and it's worth investing. Shelly Touchluck, thank you for coming on in tune today. We appreciate it very much. It's been a very enlightening discussion, folks. If you missed part of this, please go back and check back on Apple Podcasts or on SoundCloud. Don't forget, Shelly's going to be speaking tomorrow. That is Thursday. Uh, at the 5th Annual Diversity and Inclusion Conference. That's at Webster University. And you can check more at the Webster University website for that. Shelly, what, what is your website? My website is my name, ShellyTouchluck.com. That's S-H-E-L-L-Y-T-O-C-H-L-U-K.com. Thank you again for joining us today. Folks, we're glad that you listened in. We'll be talking more about this in the future. We appreciate your time today. Thank you.